We're back. I'm Jonathan Fisk. You can find me at revfisk.com slash contact. And Professor Adam Koontz, you can find him. He's a little more difficult. You got a logic complaint at ctsfw.edu if you want to get past his whiteness. This is a brief history of power with two white guys, Adam and Jonathan, for lack of better terms. And we're well past, what, lizard men and Transbritannia. We are into Twin Peaks this week. And even though my assignment was to go and watch a little thing called Blue Velvet, I'm afraid. Real life got in the way of that. I've been reading a lot of Daniel instead. But nonetheless, I've got the master here today uh, to teach me why I need to know who David Lynch is. I mean, that really is the first place to start, right? Like, it's well, there was this bad movie, or maybe it's not that bad. There was this movie with John Candy called, like, Who is Harry Crumb or, or, or something like that. I, and, I, I missed that one. Yeah. Sorry, so. I, I, somewhere, but yeah, tr- somewhere between Spaceballs <laughs> and, and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I don't know. <laughs> but, but in any case, Who is Harry Crumb? The, point of this, the whole movie to some extent is he's nobody but he is a nobody who tries to be somebody so well that's not quite who david lynch is although i think to many people the name might be just completely what uh, gone i mean where does right. he stand in the annals of american history not high i mean any warhol's <laughs> any warhol made it quite farther for being a, a, a bit of a eccentric left of weird guy right, right. Is, is that a right. comparison good comparison yeah, Andy Warhol is America's most famous Byzantine Catholic, so he's got that going for him, which is a very Pittsburgh thing to be. He's from Pittsburgh, and the museum is uh, in a really nice building in Pittsburgh. But unfortunately, I don't think Andy Warhol was at all creative. I think he was clever, David Lynch, genuinely creative, and working in film, which I said last time, and I'm happy to stand by this, is that film approaches something like what was described in the 19th century as a total work of art, which that that term is uh, Rickard Wagner's produced lots of famous operas, um, maybe the most famous opera composer ever. And the total work of art, this is probably the place to start, takes off just as Christian liturgy is becoming increasingly sparsely attended and unusually adhered to. So just as Christian liturgy is kind of declining in popularity and public importance, artists begin to feel the need for something that can integrate sound and image into some kind of comprehensive, beautiful vision. Entertainment. And more, more than that, entertainment that is not merely to escape. Hmm. I, I, I want to come back and push on that, but I, yeah. I, I, I hmm. The pursuit of the ultimate beauty, the pursuit of the complete, what, experience, really. I mean, right. if I put the word yeah. artistic in yeah. front of it, it doesn't really help it at all. Uh, and so in some ways, it's the transcendent moment. Right. And it's not the singularity of transcendence into, what, robots, uh, like we talked about a bit last time. But it was the 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 Buddhist Enlightenment Western style, right, of, of transcendentalism. But – Maybe pre that thinking, you're talking about that there's a movement amongst the arts that before transcendentalism comes along and puts words to it, they're pushing themselves towards a fusion of media as a tool for the ultimate experience. Okay, so transcendentalism as a specifically American philosophy in the 19th century is poorly connected to the arts, but 
interestingly, David Lynch is going to get involved with transcendental meditation and believes, which comes into the U.S. in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. And we can talk about that later. But I think what is going on in the desire for a comprehensive vision of beauty is the lack of one in an industrialized society, especially yes. in the city. Yes. There, there is no beauty in life. So I think what, what, what's happening is that the human spirit actually cannot live without beauty and a sense of transcendence. And so nature abhors a vacuum and art tries to swoop in where Christian liturgy had once lived in people's lives. Now, do you, I mean, you say Christian liturgy and maybe I say a pagan liturgy. Is there not something to that where art replaces worship, wherein worship has vanished, but in other cultures wherein there is worship, is there a distinction between art and worship in any, any other culture that we're aware of? Or am I? Uh, no, no. And the distinction between art and worship really uh, is one that you find only starkly in what used to be the Western Roman Empire. So in the Eastern Roman Empire, also called the Byzantines, which that kind of conventionally is done with in 1453, but in any country that's going to be Eastern Orthodox today, right? So Eastern Europe, Greece, etc., Syria, Christian Syrians, the distinction between art and worship doesn't exist. Right, right. The highest art is devoted to worship. Now, in the West, wasn't I mean, wasn't music really seen that way though, as part of the liturgical experience? Or are you are you countering yeah. that this was uh, an, an antithesis to that? Uh, music, the visual arts. I think what is unique about the West, and then this gets exported to the entirety of the globe when the West begins to wander about the globe, starting in the 15th century, in earnest with the explorations of the Portuguese and the Spaniards at first is that in the West, there is a possibility to distinguish between art and worship that, that has always existed. And it's a gap that grows, especially as the West begins to go through something that will later be called secularization, which is the sense that increasingly large parts of life and sometimes certain people's entire lives, and now almost everyone's entire life, is actually disconnected from worship of the Christian God. And very much connected to an anti-iconoclasm of, of highest order, which is far removed <laughs> quite a bit, actually, from where, where my notes got kind of cut off by the pace of what, <laughs> centuries that you're jumping over as you talk about yeah. things. So, yeah. so because the Reformation and then counter-Reformation slash post-Reformation, Europe and West, further divided art and worship through iconoclasm, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and you see that then really make the jump into American ethos Christianity. So even though today Roman Catholicism makes up a majority, I think, of uh, Christians in America, if not if not a, a significant significant yeah. uh, minority yeah, of it. Uh, mm-hmm. Yet we don't we don't think of that as as American Christianity. Like if you go to the Simpsons, the preacher is he's got Southern drawl. He, he's not right. you know he's not the right. Bishop of St. Louis. Right. And <clears throat> so that iconoclasm also pushes on this removal of an image to see, which is interesting mm-hmm. second commandment kind of stuff. Um, I don't know if that if that quite pulls us back, but what you're saying then is that philosophy, art, worship, historically are maybe all one thing that yeah. we in the West distinguish from each other, the East not as much, and hence some of the difficulty maybe between Eastern and Western science and having conversations with each other, but that now we are at a time where the unification of all of these tools of medium into a 
a kind of a hyper experiential power uh, is is on the verge in David Lynch was before the time. If he had lived uh, what, a couple centuries later or a couple, a couple decades later, he would have been Bill and Ted. But as it is, he is not. And it'll be somebody else who'll be Bill, Bill and Ted if that got that reference. But they bring peace on Earth. They bring peace on Earth eventually. So, <laughs> Okay, okay. I think what you're – you're right to say that when we think about American Christianity, we think of a, a categorically anti-iconic, mm. uh, sometimes called aniconic, Protestantism. There are kinds of Protestantism that that are not iconoclastic. There's an even more obscure Greek word for that, an iconodule, like Lutheranism or Anglicanism are not iconoclastic, generally speaking. But I'm saying even within Roman Catholicism, within any form of Western Christianity, and part of that is probably because the West had something that the East did not have, which was a pope who was religiously authoritative, but depending on where you lived, not politically authoritative. There is a gap in the West, and now because of globalization in the world, between what is religious and what is worldly. And an artist can only close that gap on his own so far. So what's happening when you get into something like film is that I think because of the medium, because it's not just a picture that doesn't move or a statue that stands somewhere or a piece of music that's played and then it's over. When you get film, which is an immersive experience in a way that religious liturgies are, whether Christian or, or anything else, when you get film, you get something that now begins, I think, to approach something like a religious experience. And someone like David Lynch, who is still alive, he's, he's fairly old, he sort of came of age at the end of the 1960s. So kind of classic boomer generation, right? Uh, older boomer. Lynch is working with a sort of post-Christian America because uh, you get you get post-Christianity fastest among people like Lynch who are, should be some, ethnically, they should be some sort of like English Protestant, but they're, they're kind of not. Um, those folks are secularized fastest in the United States, whereas somebody of the same age, roughly like Antonin Scalia, I'm thinking of dead Supreme Court justices for no particular reason. <laughs> Scalia it was, you know, raised devoutly Roman Catholic. Same thing with Samuel Alito, right? Catholics kind of secularized slower in America mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons than Protestants. Lynch, therefore, when he wants to begin to, and he wrote a whole book about this, about the role of transcendental meditation in his art, because he actually works in a bunch of different media and not just film, is he's going to go now not to Western forms of religion. He's going to go to transcendental meditation, which is a Westernized form of certain Hindu practices. Mm -hmm. The reason I think he's going to go there and I think will get us on track because we've we zoomed all the way out, let's zoom back in, is that Lynch is trying to express something not fundamentally Eastern and not even generically Western, but actually specifically American about the shape of American life. And that's eventually going to be specifically about Hollywood, especially in his most recent films. But in something like Twin Peaks, which is definitely his best known work, which is a TV series from the early mm -hmm. 90s mm -hmm. with an update in recent years, he's trying to get at something dark about American life that he thinks has always been there and especially was there in his childhood and that he first perceived 
biographically speaking, he first perceived it in a place that you and I both know, which is Philadelphia. Hmm. He moved around the country because his dad worked in the government. But when he went to art school in the mid late 1960s, he moved into North Philadelphia, which is the the home of my alma mater temple. And just down the street on Broad Street from Temple is the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, which if you look it up has had a really big role in American art really for Hmm. its entire existence. He's there, he's living in a classic Philly row home. um, (laughs) And what he sees on a daily basis as he's having a family. So he's he's a person who's now beginning to start something that very few people are starting in our own time, which is a family, young family. So he's worried about their safety, just kind of naturally on a chemical level. The father begins to be protective. You just change overnight when you have kids. Mm -hmm. And he's seeing just like insane violence literally outside his front door because Philadelphia is beginning to collapse a period, you know, the the late sixties into the seventies parallel our own like 2020 Right, right. Uh, in in ways that I think a lot of people have sort of forgotten how chaotically violent America was for about ten years. In the in the sixties and the seventies, what we call yep. the sixties, but it's really you know, 67, 68, right. up to seventy three, yep. seventy four, right. somewhere in there. Right. And then this this would just just throw into this you know, Woodstock is maybe the famous gathering, not riot, but you have riots in a yeah. couple of different spots. So certainly California yeah. is a hotbed, so that's what I'm familiar with. I'm not as familiar right. with the East Side of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so are you are you alluding then that the the places that look this is really jumping jumping ship here a little bit I suppose but when I look at all those places that are burning right now you're saying that's it, Philadelphia is a good example of what that'll be like soon the the those areas yeah. of Philadelphia that I am familiar with as being well, uh, third worldish now yeah, yeah 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 and and well and those places also were burning roughly forty years ago right right right. And and people have sort of forgotten that or they use these types of places as sort of bywords, uh, Detroit, you know, Detroit, right? right. It's, just, it's, it's just a byword for collapse. And what, what Lynch saw was the shift. And I think this is also something, especially if you're listening to this and you're not a boomer chronologically, which neither of us is, I think one of the things that's hard for younger generations to understand is that there there are people and lynch is one of these people and this is sort of what twin peaks is about i want to talk about that specifically there are people who were raised in a better world and that better world was geographically in the same place that this better place that they lived was as far as its latitude and longitude it was geographically the same place that they still live and i think that the shock of the whole thing changing so rapidly uh within a lifetime is just too much for some people. Well, this is true. Okay, so so yeah. I, I'm really again I'm on a tangent a bit here, but it, it really yeah, is something fine. I'm trying yeah, to work my way through on my own that is very much connected to this, and that is which if you want to break down everyone who's alive, including anybody who's being born maybe right now, mm-hmm. into segments of every ten or fifteen years, you're calling them something like a generation. Mm-hmm. And then you're looking at the last century of change plus the next 25, 40 years of change. Which one of these groups has gone through the most 
in one Change. lifetime? Yeah. I'm not sure we can answer that question, honestly. <laughs> Clearly, the greatest generation saw an immense number of things. And World War I by itself just blew people's minds what was going on simply by adding you know, rotary machine guns to stuff. So, so I don't think it's fair to just dismiss what that did to people's souls. Um, mm-hmm. But certainly – uh, I, the reason I'm pondering this is as finally accepting I'm Gen X, even though I, I pine to be a millennial so I can have some hope, <laughs> right? Uh, it, 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 for that reason, though, it's like I think about all the change that I've gone through. I always assumed like, oh, yeah. I'm just kind of in the middle. It's not really that bad for me. I like, no, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. The world I grew up in was so far away from this one. It was so millions and millions of miles away from this one. And it was safe and it was happy. And I was looking forward to a better America. And all all these myths, whatever, they were real then, right? Right. Um, Right. COVID is not the only thing that has put a a dent in that. COVID just was kind of the nail in the coffin for me. So, right. So, right. Okay. So, so who's really facing the change? And then you look at like right now. Okay. So now we're, are are they really going to get brain interfaces with the computer? If they do, then the kids being born now got other worlds coming, right? If not, and it's like margarine, right? Oh yeah. Margarine is going to fix it all. Oops. Didn't do it. Right. Well then maybe, maybe we're at a, at a, what do you call it? uh, Moore's law might bump into something here in a couple of years. You familiar with Moore's law? Yeah, uh, yeah. So Moore's law out for the listener. You know the idea that the speed of computing is doubling, while the size to do, to make it is is uh, having every year. And this right. has continued for quite some time now. Uh, information speed is picking up. Uh, it, the assumption is sort of it'll go on forever. Is that really true? Given what we know about quantum physics and our bumping into things there, hence the push for quantum computing. Blah 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 blah. blah. I mean, you go on and on to this. I had a question when I started it though. Do you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't. So uh, what I I'm, I'll connect. Oh, oh. The, yeah, go ahead. Generations right. going through such extreme change that how can yeah. you possibly create a narrative out of what you're seeing week okay. by week, year by year? That's stable. Yeah. You can't. There's no can't. stable narrative no. in in the white noise. That's... No, no. Ugh. And and if you look at Lynch's work, you start from his first film, Eraserhead, but you go into the '80s, right? And the '80s is really the coming into their own of the boomers of his own generation. Blue Velvet is, I think, the year I was born, 1986. Twin Peaks is early 1990s, right? Your first, your first certified boomer president is 1992 with Bill Clinton, one of three presidents born in the summer of 1946, of all things. Huh. And so what you can see is that over time, Lynch is moving from sort of outsider frustration, Eraserhead feels very 1970s in that way, which is what it was, into this very boomer sense, if you look at Blue Velvet, which begins with beautiful pictures of this beautiful small town. There is an iconic image at the beginning and the end of Blue Velvet of a man on a fire truck waving. Just It's, it's just a beautiful day. And the opening shot of Blue Velvet is going to take you down from, this, from the suburban grass into what's going on in the grass where beetles are eating rotting flesh. Hmm. And what what's going to happen in basically every Lynch film, and so this is his thing about America, but it begins in 86 and then the early 90s with Twin Peaks, is that underneath what appears to be great tranquility, beauty, and prosperity is in fact some sort of hidden world which is fundamentally corrupt and violent. And this is, in everything that he does, always shown to you as something shocking. That is, you shouldn't accept it as normal, but you should accept it as real. 
So explain more about that last sentence. I mean, I think I understood the, the words on their substance, but I think you yeah. meant more than that. So yeah, I do. I do mean more than that because I think what you find in a lot of media, especially film and TV, which are largely the same thing with streaming platforms, is you find a a normalization of things like violence, unusual forms of sexual activity. Those are presented to you over and over again. And what and the purpose of that, it, there's no specific artistic purpose in the presentation of those things. They're basically just there so that you accept them as normal. They're givens. They're they're just minor plot points. And this Whereas happens in you, every level of, of any yeah. kind of dramatic enterprise. But you're yeah. suggesting that uh, an artist can be doing this on a broader level with his work over the course of a lifetime. And that right. movements, which in fact are ideas and have consequences, are are made up of artists in a flow or in a trend over a lifetime as well. And then that often impacts not only you – know, it doesn't just reflect what's going on under the surface as, as yeah. Lynch is trying to do, but but mm-hmm. in some ways foreshadows uh, what will be coming next. Uh, the arts become what the people is real. do, yeah. right? Yeah. Right, right. Right. And and so for something to go from real to normal, the artist needs to present what he is presenting as not only there, a simple fact of life. Think about how people think it's normal in uh, when you're in prison to be raped as a man. Right. (laughs) This is like, for one, the way that prison operates in America is not historically normal. It's not how most people have punished criminal offenders. Uh, but also, well, where did they get that idea? Have most people been to prison? Hmm. No, they got that idea from media and they hang it over people when they want them to go to jail. That's what they'll threaten them with on Twitter. Right. And so for something to move from real to normal, the artist has to present it as just sort of a given. Whereas when Lynch is presenting in Blue Velvet, uh, you have an issue of kind of criminal, a criminal underworld within this small town. Or in Twin Peaks, you have the demonic within a small town Mm -hmm. is Lynch is not saying, oh, well, small towns were never they were never really loving. They were never really wholesome. There's no such thing as wholesome. You were just deluded. Right. You were living in a bubble. That was your problem. He's saying those things are real. There, what, there are such things as innocence. There are such things as undefiled beauty. The problem is that those things are threatened, even within a s- small town America, by certain other forces at work within the very same people who want to be, or who at least present themselves as, normal, wholesome, family-oriented. Which does become sort of the ultimate boomer if I can say it, nihilistic dark hero, the, the, the hero is one who is always evil and good in boomer media. Uh, he is always flawed. And this is not always a bad thing because they've reacted against – and I think Stan Lee's whole trajectory, Spider-Man on, of the flawed hero is a big piece of this, uh, was a reaction against a – a mysticism or a, a mythology that was being put upon them about the uh, the unassailable man. And I don't know yeah. where that where that is uh, where you would be able to tack that to human history. Yeah. But you know, Teddy Roosevelt stands as him in some ways, right? He is he is the man who everyone wants to be. And then, but the you know the hiding of 
his later life insanity, struggles yeah. with his son's death, all that kind of stuff yeah. from the American populace. Yeah. This bleeds out in the need for heroes who are both evil and good. But now the far end of this and in, in, in Gen X, you see that the there is no good left in most of the heroes, right? right. That's, that's right, kind of right, what right, we, right. we lead into. But that's, yeah. I'm jumping ahead a bit there. Well, you're you're not because I think if you take like it's sort of a crossover figure within media, and this is not the trajectory Lynch has by the late '90s and early 2000s. I will have to talk about where he goes. But if you take somebody like Tony Soprano, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you're dealing with Tony Soprano, you're dealing with you're dealing with you know quote the golden age of TV beginning to dawn because now you get these really complex narratives, these very complex heroes, protagonists. Let's say more neutrally within media. Mm-hmm. Uh, taking the amount of time that used to be devoted to say the novel in the 19th century uh, within within literature. What you're getting in Lynch is something in between that and what his generation grew up with. So I think one of the keys to understanding boomers, and I, I, I first picked up on this in listening to early 2000s political discussion, because I was astounded by American politicians, generals, stuff like that, describing very complex foreign policy situations as good guys and bad guys. Right? <laughs> so Osama bin Laden is a bad guy, which, okay, like I get that from like a really like he's not on our team perspective, but that's not it's not very helpful to understanding your enemy to just think of him as the bad guy. But the crucial thing here is that the media that they're growing up with, generally black and white, which is why the hats are what they are, and hackers still use this terminology, is white hat and black hat. That is, good guys wear white hats and black right, and white From Westerns. black and white TV, right, right. Mm-hmm. And, and bad guys wear black hats. And you can actually see this in you know black and white Westerns. And Westerns are easily, vastly, mm. way more popular, both as TV shows, as movies, and as popular literature in the 50s and 60s, they're way more popular than Mm -hmm. they are today, Mm -hmm. maybe more than anything else. So you're growing up with TV, you turn on the TV set, not to speak of stuff like Father Knows Best and early TV like that, but just think about Westerns, which is the stuff that a boy could watch on a Saturday afternoon growing up in 1960. And he's going to see 100% good people and 100% bad people. Lynch's heroes in the 80s and 90s, and the guy that he usually casts, this is a good Google search, because he likes to recast certain people throughout lots of different projects, is Kyle MacLachlan, hmm. who is a very classic, just American looking, you know, this is, you know, he, he could be a disillusioned lieutenant in a Vietnam film, but <laughs> but Lynch casts him as a guy who is not evil. He's never actually evil, but there is potentially Lynch here has a very classic American Protestant vision of people. There's evil inside him that could come out if he allies himself with the evil things that he is discovering are going on. Okay. Cosmic horror, very much a part of this. Familiar with that terminology? Yeah. Okay. And then, so I... I want to go a lot of directions with that, so I should just let you keep talking. I need a cross-reference with the X-Files. Mm-hmm. How does X-Files, which is late 90s, jive with this in terms of touching on some of the same themes, okay. but maybe avoiding them in more of a secular direction? I, I would guess it, it, it leans yeah. secular in its, its answers. Yeah. Okay, so I think one of the things that happens with the X-Files 
is that you start getting a strain of thinking, which is very popular from Gen X onwards. And I mean, there are, you can, you can find kind of um, hilarious Twitter threads that just compile TikToks of uh, Gen Z people. And it's like Gen Z will find a conspiracy in anything <laughs> because I, th I think from Gen X onwards, you get, and millennials were supposed to be Gen Y. It just never caught on. Right, right. You get. Well, you can't imagine why, because Gen X didn't really like it much. Thank you very much. Like we're going to call uh, our kids Gen Y. Hey, kids, you're Gen Y. Our kids call them Gen X. Thanks a lot. No. Right, there you go. <laughs> um, I, 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 th I think it's because from Gen X onwards, you get, you get conspiratorial thinking in any decadent empire. Yes. And I don't say decaying, I say decadent. So it's already going on and it's progressive and it's in a, in a bad sense, it's progressing. So in any decadent empire, you're going to get conspiracies because people feel that power is inaccessible and potentially at least probably actually evil. Yeah, us versus them and the lizard men. We're right there, right? And That's they're, where they're we not started human. here. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. right, 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 right. So when that happens, when conspiratorial thinking comes naturally to most of the population you're going to get you're going to get all kinds of different conspiratorial thinking what can happen in x-files is something different and this is why i think david lynch is post-christian but not necessarily post-protestant in his thinking hmm. because what happens in the x-files is that you can outsource those conspiracies to various other potentially inside the government potentially outside the solar system entities but it's not really you like your right. personal problem right. is an inability to figure out enough of what's going on lynch is still protestant in a classical sense in understanding that evil is both a problem outside of you maybe in unnamed alphabet soup agencies maybe in extraterrestrials but also inside of you, because the, yeah. the conflict that you always have is, okay, I discovered the criminal underworld in this town in Western North Carolina. That's blue velvet. I discovered the dark doings inside the elite of this small town who are still culturally Episcopalian. That's Twin Peaks. Okay. But I also discovered that when I discover those things, they uncover things inside me that are potentially evil, if not actually evil. And that's really what you find, especially in Twin Peaks. So I gotta, I gotta say, this is why I considered Game of Thrones valuable TV when I watched it. When mm -hmm. I watched it again, I don't know, but when I watched it, what was inspiring to me was the complication of my own heart as I watched yeah. these these protagonists, and they are both the heroes and the villains are protagonists throughout this thing, yeah. as they struggle with their consciences, and you're like, I get it. You know, yeah, almost yeah, every step. Yeah, and yeah. so there's something now, but can, can we push that back? That's not worship though, right? That's not, that's not necessarily no. spiritual, but it is, no. well, I don't know, escape. I, I don't know. Right. You can push okay, it back so, for that word a little bit. Yeah. I, I think, and this is a, this is a hesitation that I have in talking about Lynch is that if you watch these things, you know, they're not, they're not viewing that you can do with children any more than Game of Thrones is viewing right. that you can do with children. And I right. think what's interesting about Christian liturgy, for instance, is that it is viewing you can do with children. So let me just take an example. When you when you get, and I, I, I haven't, I know Game of Thrones, I think I might've watched two episodes. So I, I, don't, I don't know enough 
but if I if you watch Blue Velvet, the depictions of human sexuality there, he's trying to tell you something. It's not gratuitous. He's not trying to normalize right, it. Right. It's not but porn. There is, no, it's not. But it is kind of violent, and it's and it's too much. Right. It's it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And what is happening there, and I don't think he's trying to normalize, but he is trying to show that something is kind of deeply sick going on here. And it's going to get even more intense as he gets into analyzing California and Hollywood, which we'll get to in a little bit. There's something deeply sick. When you hear about sexuality in Christian liturgy, let's say, you know, they're, they're reading from Genesis 1 and and we're going to hear about be fruitful and multiply. That works within that liturgy on several levels because the adults understand the full import of what that means. The children do not, but they get a picture of human sexuality, which involves something holistic, a marriage, which is being modeled in their own lives by their mother and father, also within the church, which is upholding that generally. When you're watching a film and you get a depiction of violent sexuality in Blue Velvet, or something I think still darker, demonic, quite literally in Twin Peaks, you're doing that on your own and you're seeing it as real, okay? And you can analyze whether or not you agree with that, but you're seeing it as real. And there is a way in which that seeing resembles viewing pornography because it is so isolated, mm -hmm. because seeing human sexuality that way, especially in, in that bleakness, hmm. isolates you as a viewer. And so now we're, we're, we're into something which I don't know if I want to go into extensively today because I, I want to talk about his understanding of Hollywood. I want to talk about California. Well, what bothers but, me is the, isol the isolation is yeah. not simply connected to sexuality per se. No, it's the not. The question is – and this is, this is – as someone who's used video media constantly and who mm -hmm. has aspired to, to make film as you have, uh, among other things, uh, I'm, I'm disconcerted increasingly by my awareness of just what a powerful tool for manipulation it yes, is. Right. And I'm not even convinced it's morally right to use it at, at a certain level. And that's, that's, I'm probably swinging the other way as I ponder okay. the potential yeah. mistakes I might make. So bear with yeah. me a little as I think yeah. it through, right? But, but it's like we haven't thought this through much. We just kind of did it, and now everyone's right. doing it to us. Yep. Um, are you familiar with the book uh, Persuasion? I think it's called persuasion, or maybe it's persuasion. No. It's a scientific no. study of the use of the stuff to manipulate your mind without you knowing. It's it's really in, <laughs> intense. Um, the, I believe it. The, the data is it. incontrovertible. So, but but yeah, back back to I think going into shifting from let's say, say it this way, shifting from the idea of the medium itself being problematic, which is what I'm yes. going to say. I'm going to say it's at least it's problematic. If you're not I, using I, it rightly, you're yes. going to be using it for worship. It's like I, it's like it's worship or use it right. <laughs> I would I would agree with that. And I think if you watch Lynch's films and you watch what people watch on their TV set or in a movie theater inside the film, he would agree with me that the isolating nature of visual media, of film specifically, of film yeah, and yeah. TV, is at least problematic, if not actually sort of by definition a problem. Yeah. Species dividing, I, I would yeah, say. Right, it, is, right. it is in a devolutionary sense. But that's one topic, media ecology being something we've touched on and need to touch yeah. on more in the future. But then what's on the media, I don't want to go too far adrift unless you have something else you want to hit before we get to the Hollywood problem. Yeah. I've been now wondering, 
and this is because I spent so much time in Daniel today, uh, and so I'm pondering <laughs> spiritual wars of light against darkness and on kind of ground proximate levels. And As what one are, does. What right. on earth? Well, I would hope one would eventually yeah, if they take no, their religion. If you take your does. religion seriously and you believe in good and evil, then you should consider these things important. Yeah. My question is like, you know, and, and as, a, as a student of California, being a child of California, not by birth, but by moving there, going through the school system, having California literature being something that, you know, I, I studied in, in detail, both in high school and in college. What on earth, what great evil, what blood <laughs> ritual of godlessness founded Hollywood? I, I, what, what? Yeah. It wasn't just yeah. pigs on an altar. It was, it had yeah. to be much more than this. Did, did voodoo obscene. come down from Jupiter and land? I mean, it is a, oh man, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So Lynch goes here from Lost Highway onward. There's a trilogy. I think it's a trilogy. I think it's meant to be seen together of Lost Highway, followed by Mulholland Drive, which I think is his best film, bar none, followed by Inland Empire, which is maybe a little too weird for everyone except the real fan. And I, I don't know if I'm a real fan. So, so it sounds like it sounds like that uh, C.S. Lewis's Cosmic Horror series, Paralandra, <laughs> right? It's, it starts it off. Yes. You need it. You know, the middle one's the best, though. All right, sorry, sorry, Out of Silent Planets, the first one starts it off. The middle one's the best, as you're saying, Blue Velvet, right? Yeah, and then the last agreed. one, if you're a true fan, you're going to love it, but otherwise you probably stay away. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's yeah, a little yeah, too yeah. intense. Yeah, although, I mean, okay, so that hideous strength is actually, um, I, you know, Fight Me, that's actually the best it one. It is by so. far the best one, but only yeah. because you're a true fan and so you, you I, I i am a true fan with c.s <laughs> lewis the problem okay what what happens with lynch is that post-christianity even with the practice of transcendental meditation in his life there is no hope hmm. so hmm. what you're getting is an incisive analysis of hollywood and especially hollywood as definitive of california and 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 because of its power definitive of what it means to be american and I want to explain that, yeah, but go just yeah, but but just kind of like to sum it up right now is he because he sees it that way, he sees all of those places, Hollywood, California, USA, as therefore hopeless because there's nothing to pull you back from the basic obscenity that that historically, if you look at it, is at the heart of Hollywood. So there's a scandal people know nothing about. And I'm starting here and I'm going to come back to Lynch because so Lynch I was, I was right about too. blood rituals. I, I was you right were, about you were you were right. <laughs> what you want to what you want to look into is not only is Hollywood. Hollywood basically starts because Thomas Edison has a death grip on all kinds of patents and copyrights concerning film production. He was an extremely shrewd businessman. I don't know if he was a great inventor, but he was a great businessman. And he locks down film production. And basically the move to Hollywood is a move by lots of folks from New York. The best book on this is Neil Gabler's history of Hollywood as uh, specifically, he, he understands it as like the major episode in American Jewish history. Neil Gabler, G-A-B-L-E-R, great book. I think it's called, a Place of Their Own, How Jews Invented Hollywood. I can't remember. I think it's called A Place of Their Own is the main title. All right. But he says, you know, they moved there for two reasons. One is very pedestrian. You can work year round in Southern California. Very, very pedestrian. Yeah. And you can get all these different sets, right. natural sets within an easy drive. 
the, the non-pedestrian reason is really that you they could begin to define for themselves men who largely had been distributors of film, not pro, not producers or directors of film, but distributors. They owned, they they moved out of owning vaudeville theaters into owning Nickelodeons into owning film theaters. Now they're going to move into film production. And what they can do is they can define the medium on their own. This produces within the early years of Hollywood a scandal, which was enormous at the time and is now completely forgotten, but it's definitive for people like Lynch and their vision of Hollywood. And that is the Fatty Arbuckle scandal, not a household name anymore. You know, I've heard the name though. Crazy. Okay, that. good. I don't That's know great. where, no, I don't know great. how, but it rings a bell. Right. Because Fatty Arbuckle is a major silent film star and a girl dies mysteriously at his party. He's accused of the murder. There is a sense already in the 19 teens and, and early 1920s that Hollywood is a cannibalistic place. <laughs> People go there and they die there mysteriously, or they go there and they are completely changed for the worse. That it that it devours its aspirants. Welcome to the jungle. We got fun and games. <laughs> so so what's going on by the time David Lynch begins to meditate on Hollywood, which is middle 1990s, really down to today, is he's saying this is a place where things literally never are what they appear to be. Hmm. And (laughs) unlike small town America. Industrial light and magic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Like like the the definition of the place is we came here to tell better lies. Yes. Yes. (laughs) That that would be go, you know, that that's you. All you have to read is Neil Gabler. But Unlike small town America, so here's the difference. America might be fundamentally off, but it is off because human beings are off. Hollywood is off on purpose, which means in Lynch's terms, it is evil on purpose because it's lying on purpose. Hmm. Does this have anything to do with uh, the movie Casino? I don't know. All right. Well, something happened. <laughs> something happened after California became California, and that's that there were people in California who wanted to do things like these guys in California who left New York wanted to do, and they couldn't do it in California, so they did it in Vegas. Right. They just planted a city in the middle right, of nowhere. Right, right. Casinos about that, if I recall. Um, I, I made it a point to watch all of those. You know, what would you? How did you refer to the actor being able to play a, you know, a Vietnam uh, sub sub? Uh, Colonel Vietnam Lieutenant, yeah, this right, would right. be Kyle McLaughlin. I made sure to go through all of those films, so I would I would have the full repertoire when I was young, and, and I did the same thing with all mob movies. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah. I've missed well, any. Of I them. mean, Vegas, Vegas will be its own episode. I have other things in mind before then, but Vegas is a lot like Los Angeles in that it is a place called out of nothing by people with very big ideas. But so so okay. Before we do that, then, yeah, you don't make too big of an idea out of the fact that I mean, okay, so some girl dies at a party yeah. in L.A. Yeah. with some artist who's from the silent film era, and you yeah. want me to believe this makes David Lynch an American prophet who shows that we have the heart of darkness. <laughs> Conrad was right. All oh, the heart of darkness is in kind in mankind, and wherever we right. go, we bring the colonial evil. Just not because we're white, but because we're all evil. I don't yeah. know. I almost said sinful, but there is a tendency to choose evil. And when we do, we get real bad. Um, yeah, th- that okay. at least. 
Okay, so Lynch understands Hollywood to be different. You start in Lost Highway. In Lost Highway, you're in Hollywood, but no one is specifically of Hollywood. So what you have is an orbit. So the, so the, the way that you see film used in Lost Highway is explicitly for pornography. The quote hmm. filmmakers in Lost Highway turn out to be pornographers. Hmm. And so his sense of Hollywood is defined not by Hollywood itself, but by the porn industry, which right. exists in sort of symbiosis with the above ground, let's say. And why would it industry. not? Why would it not? And, and, and especially since it kind of always had. I remember learning that one of the first or the second films ever put uh, into, into production, you know, kind of uh, – Again, old silent movie style was, yeah. in fact, uh, nudity. I mean, it wasn't maybe the, hard, <laughs> the hardcore stuff, but yeah. we, we didn't take yeah. long. Let's put it this way. We didn't no, take we didn't. long. And, and my right. guess is that if this is even going on at that level, why would – it just puts me through the Epstein Island thing already. Like how much of that is going on before they have an island to fly to where the, uh, the sex trade uh, through imagery uh, exists mm-hmm. almost immediately as a right. upper-tier elitist's uh, thing I I, right. I can see it, right. it and they, they the image and without question I'm not how do you want to spin it the image of the soccer mom that effectively is the milf porn star that mm-hmm. is the aspiration of every American I think eventually one way or the other solving for ethnicity of course that's a production of fifty years of Hollywood yeah they, they yeah. have they have done that yeah yeah and. What I want to kind of I want to leave Inland Empire because I, I think it's just honestly too weird to handle. It's like talking about the the Twin Peaks movie that he came out with. It's it's too obscure, and we're not doing geekery. We're we're trying to do something people can access. There's, there's a danger uh, that exists when the artist has too much control over his product, it's, and that and that is exactly what yeah, happened in both it. those cases. So the 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 one maybe to watch, even though it's confusing, is Mulholland Drive kind of the middle of the trilogy, because what happens there is that rather than showing you the criminal underworld, he shows you Hollywood. There's a girl who comes to Los Angeles and she is she wants to be a film star. She has an aunt who may or may not be off camera, who is an aging Hollywood star. That aunt lives in a place occupied by aging sort of classic Hollywood people. So in the 90s, these people were still alive who had been stars in the 40s. And everything is above board unless you are following very closely. So if there is any hope in Lynch, it is the sense that if you look closely enough, as he obviously thinks he does, if you look closely enough, you can see not something redemptive necessarily, but you can see the evil that other people are missing that's going on in everyday life. Again, the cosmic horror horror element then, that you are, although in cosmic horror, classically, only one person sees, right? But you're being let into the inner circle. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the the aspir. This is why we grasp the conspiracy theory when we don't have the power, is because we're trying to have power by the story uh, over the entire thing. Yeah. 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 And then so and when I, someone like Lynch does this or, or otherwise, we're, we're all kind of grasping for the real story. The question is how much – who really sees the inside and, and what is your Rosetta Stone for understanding the present moment? You look right out in front of you. Yeah. Uh, 
Do you believe and the I, stories about the uh, – I forget what he used earlier. Sorry, I just interrupted you. He used earlier to talk about like a historical statement that we just kind of all assume to be true. We just operate every day as if it's true but you know, it hasn't been tested. Um, yeah. yeah. I think I think that the difficulty in identifying, you know, quote, what is really going on is that something you see in both Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive is under the circumstances of what in Lost Highway is a little harder to understand, but in Mulholland Drive is is almost certainly the abuse that this young woman uh, has undergone either before, after, and or during uh, her time in Hollywood. And that's, that's probably, that's sexual abuse, but it's also all the other things that could be included with that is that the, is that the personality who I am, which is supposed to be the stable thing mm-hmm. in a detective story is the very thing that fractures under abuse. I don't know who I am. I don't know if I'm innocent or guilty. I don't really know in lost highway, even what my name is or how old I am, or what my face looks like. And therefore, I can't tell whether or not evil is actually evil anymore, because all I see are a succession of images, and sometimes I'm good and sometimes I'm evil. This is why if you're interested in the stuff we're talking about (laughs) today, the place to start is Twin Peaks, because there's a figure that's in Twin Peaks that's in pretty much everything that Lynch does, and that is the innocent young woman. The problem is, the deeper down you drill, the harder you look, the longer you're looking, the the harder it gets to tell whether or not she's innocent. And in Twin Peaks, that figure, whether in the TV series or the film Firewalk With Me, is actually still stable, right? It's like there is still this like beautiful, wholesome woman that goes along with a beautiful, wholesome place, a small town. And she is still there, right? There, there is actually something that could be recovered. When you're in Hollywood with Lynch, there's not necessarily anything there. So what do we the take di- from this? What do we take from this? What do you do with this? I mean, first off, are you, are, you, are you implying that Hollywood is actually filled with cannibals? Maybe that's what Kabbalah is really about. I don't know. <laughs> uh, what are you really implying? Uh, yeah. Aside from that, well, we all know that the movies aren't really telling us stories that are helping us by and large. We all kind of know right. that already. Right. I think that sometimes when you think about Hollywood or people think about like, okay, well, things that we mentioned earlier, pornography or, (laughs) you know, not the same category, theoretically, Game of Thrones. When you're dealing with stuff like that, people often will talk about this stuff on an individualized level. Like, okay, this is my take on why it's actually good to watch Game of Thrones. or this is my Mm -hmm. take on why it's not good to watch Game of Thrones Mm -hmm. or porn or whatever. I think that Lynch is getting at something that is more than just the point of like, is it good for me to see this or not? Which is why I'm not being prescriptive about, okay, you listen to this, now go watch Mulholland Drive. Now go watch Blue Velvet. I I don't know if I can make those decisions for everybody and people's criteria are going to be different. Lynch is getting at something bigger than that. And that is that, let's say cosmically, a word that you've been using uh, that I think is really helpful. Cosmically, how or why are these things even there, right? Because the shock of discovery in his films is not so much that I, that I or the protagonist or someone is involved with this or that evil thing. It's that it is there. That's the shocking thing. That's the horrifying thing. Yeah, you can't handle the truth. 
You so can't know the truth. You know, you know that. You yeah. know that one, right? A few good I, men. I do know that one, right? So, I mean, it, it, the, the the point is, it you, the idea is, it is too much. It is overwhelming when you observe this, and this right. is the cosmic horror element too. Is it drives you mad to see it? Yeah. But you're right. now claiming though that this does not drive you mad, or should not drive you mad, right? But it, but it could because I mean, if you're like in Mulholland Drive, there's this diner. It appears completely pedestrian. It's like surrounded by parking lot. It's nothing. He takes you out of the diner. A conversation that you will later understand in the movie is not at all innocuous, not at all simple. He takes you out of this completely kind of like boring, like, why am I watching this conversation? And he goes into the back behind the dumpster. And there's a figure sitting there with this horrible hook nose, looks like a bum. And there's this in and out bag that shows you inside there are literally horrors inside the trash. Hmm. So what we cast off in America, and in that case, and I think he's very specific about it being in California. It's a bag you could only get in California. And some when, parts of Arizona. But okay, yeah. <laughs> there, I knew there was going to be a counter signal on that. Um, I just felt it incoming. Uh, when you look inside that, you will find things that you can't, like you just can't handle. And he 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 cuts the film at that very moment in a way that is disturbing visually, yeah. uh, orally, in every way. Hey, he's using all the tools at his disposal to create the experience. Yeah. And then back to everything drenched in sunshine in the next shot. Now, all of this reminds me of an artist I've seen plenty of and don't necessarily aspire to um, recommend. Although I would – if I ever made film, I'd be a lot like this guy, Tarantino. Um, yeah. and, and yeah. his use of stuff. I don't know um, how close those two guys' trajectories as artists are. It'd be okay. interesting to see what kind of parallels okay. they have in terms of their their um, their learning, like who okay. who were their leaders that led them to see film this way because yeah, they okay. definitely see film in a similar way that the rest of um, Hollywood does not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, so what about then – I mean this is – we don't have to end. I, I'm happy to keep talking, but the last thing on my notes from your earlier notes yeah. you, you sent me is, is this – Myth of commercial magical, yeah, okay stuff. I mean, and I want to say magical realism, which is a, a hat tip to a California style uh, poetry if, originally, but then it becomes a storytelling thing. It, it's it's Method, closely yeah. connected to historical fiction, although it's usually done in the pr- near past, present, or near future, and it yeah. portends to reality with extreme like radical shifts in. Anything and and that's about okay. the best definition it gets. Are you familiar with that at all? I am. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Most people will yeah. not be because it's pretty pretty narrow little thing, but it is sort of what we're dancing around here a little bit too. Yeah, I yeah, think. Yeah. Okay. So I think Tarantino is is actually a great place to kind of compare and contrast, and a good place to end because uh. Tarantino, former you know video rental store guy, you know only '90s kids will even understand what I'm talking right, about. Right. Right. Former. You know. So he spends so much of his time before he becomes famous as a director, watching basically everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he is the kind of guy that within his medium, you can truly say he does know it all. Yeah. And huh. you, you can see it down to today. Tarantino has a capacity and he has been rewarded by Hollywood in a way that Lynch has not. And the reason for that, I will make clear in a second. Yeah. Tarantino has a capacity to reference things not only in the american past but within hollywood movies within the canon uh if you watch enough tcm 
maybe one day you will understand everything that Tarantino's doing in a movie that I think no one else has. I don't, I don't think Lynch even has hmm. as erudite of a filmmaker as Lynch is. Tarantino has an amazing command. I think that is crucial to understanding something. And that pertains to the notion of being a film buff or the, the notion that has gone way bigger and become far more positive than it used to be, which is the notion of being a nerd or a geek or being into some kind of fandom. Hmm. And that is that the job of the content producer, whether it's a filmmaker or a podcaster or whatever, is to bring you into a, a universe and then to have you spend your time in that universe, mastering that universe. And Tarantino not only provides that for fans of his films, he does that himself with things like, okay, this film's job is to reproduce spaghetti Westerns with my own twist as accurately as possible. My job in, in this film is to reproduce the 1960s or World War II hero films as much as possible. And he goes for it down to what's playing on the radio and what is the audio quality of Motown <laughs> coming out of the speaker, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So, he is a geek's geek. Lynch does not actually want you to be a geek, to be a Lynch fanboy. And the reason is much bigger than just sort of like, oh, he's personally humble or he's simply too weird. Those are other explanations you could go to. But I think the reason is much more philosophically profound. When you remain within a creator's universe, or more broadly, Hollywood's creative universe, what they are giving you, what is the content you are looking at, what have they put into production and allowed for normal people to see. You remain under the control of the magician. You remain subject to the liturgy that he is performing in front of you and involving you in. Lynch is trying to show you that there are things outside film, even when he's inside film and you're inside his film, and those things are actually bigger and more important and generally darker than the film itself. So he leaves you a universe outside the work of art. Somebody like Tarantino does not. That's really and Hollywood does not. I'm still wrestling then with the, the idea of the cosmic horror and that Lynch then, if not Protestant, by the hauntedness of his Protestantism, yeah, is yeah, still is, in, in cosmic yeah. horror. And Tarantino... Maybe keeping magical realism of a sort dances right out of cosmic horror. Yeah. I, and I can't think of – I'm trying. I, I, I didn't see Inglorious Bastards. You know, I haven't seen some of the more recent stuff because I, I got – frankly, they're boring. Yeah, it, right. it, Pulp yeah, Fiction was too. great and they just got boring after that. Yep, uh, True Romance too. is really good. But uh, I can't think of one in which he deals with an actual higher power of, of cosmic level uh, yeah. it, where he really – I mean True Romance is sort of like the, 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 the happy ending, but that doesn't really count I don't think. Yeah. So that's interesting that he is, he's truly more uh, secular in his, his prophecies. And now it's got me wondering, Django, he's like, what, what is this? Is he leading Hollywood by the nose into the future of, of uh, uh, its own scripts? I, I mean yeah. is, is he sort of Hollywood's own personal prophet and Lynch yeah. is their Cassandra? Um, yeah. You know, I don't know. I, I'm just a crazy white guy talking to another crazy white guy, and we both work for a bunch of other white guys by and large. <laughs> so why should you listen to this at all? What, do you want to have a closing word on some of that and lead us in the next time or something? I think the reason that Hollywood is so powerful and Tarantino as such a child and a student of Hollywood 
is powerful is because something like Inglorious Bastards, for instance, it's or Django Unchained with American history, the assessment is not supposed to be profound. They understand that images are vastly more important to pretty much everybody than words or analysis. Yes, the kind I can. Yeah, this, the kind of stuff that we're doing here. Ah. But the stuff that is that is underneath the image, the story driving it, the assumptions driving it, the kind of things that we try to show you here, those are the things that even if they're not analyzed or displayed with any depth are incredibly powerful. And when the work of art, whether it's a film or a picture or a song or whatever, leaves you with nothing outside the work of art, then that is the point at which you have been completely closed off from anything cosmic. Whether it's evil, as in Lynch, or whether, as in the Christian liturgy, it's good. So the, I'm going to summarize a little bit what you just said there. That the, the profound understanding of Hollywood is that you're not watching it for what they're saying. You're watching it for how they're saying it. That yeah. the, the, the entertainment factor, which we know is now a chemical reality that can be detailed down to various color spectrums and all this right. kind of stuff, what right. you look at, right? right. And, and yet the, the lie is that amusing ourselves to death, it's just good for amusement. But here, look, this other stuff's the Trojan horse underneath. Everything you're, yeah. you're watching is normalizing you. You're believing that's normal. What do you think? Right. Oh, that's not normal the first time you see it. The second time you yeah. see it, oh, it's more normal than it was last time. And it just continues to happen. This how pornography progresses in terms of its development on, you know, on, on the uh, male mind, particularly, and female too. But bigger than that, right? This is how what we talked about last week, education being a form of mass tyranny if it's all controlled by one yeah. source, right? Um, the same reality here. When the education is – a medium that bypasses your thinking front <laughs> and, yeah. and inserts behind it assumptions that change core realities, all for a commercial benefit. Again, you know who who really does run this? That that was me just gisting. I'm still asking you who runs it, but I think what you want to say is run away from any story that only points you back to itself, unless that story happens to be your final worldview. Is yeah. that a better summation of your your actual intent? Yeah, and I uh, next time I want to talk about magic, but I want to talk about it specifically in terms of money, because <laughs> underneath the founding of Hollywood is a way of thinking about money, of making money, of making money available to people when you want it to be and and not when you don't. That predates Hollywood, but is fundamentally like Hollywood in this way that it is able to make what is unnatural feel natural. And that is a trick at the heart of a lot of modern America that Lynch is certainly trying to show us by pointing to something outside his own films. So the, the trying to make the abnormal feel normal until eventually everyone thinks it is normal yep. and some outsider comes. Until they know comes, nothing else. Yeah, but some human from long ago comes and like, what are y'all doing? That's really weird. We're like, it's normal, <laughs> right? But we've all been right. conditioned. Now this is, oh golly, this is deconstruction of the highest order. This is what, you know, the those calling for systemic change or pointing out some of these same kinds of things. So much more we could go into, but I, I think we're going we're gonna to call it here. So next time, magic meaning debt. Because debt is a magical wand <laughs> right. made with special right. little runes inscribed. I promise it all works out for your benefit. I'll only take 2%. And uh, and empower and, and how this maybe then continues to build on our ideas of not just Hollywood per se, um, but the American empire's shadow, its underbelly. Uh, what's it doing right now? 
in such a way that not you run for the hills per se, but that you just uh, take each day uh, straight up as it is. And, and don't be led by the nose by those who just got really good at their industrial light and magic. Uh, yada, yada, wag the dog. I don't know. You look like you want to say something, Koontz. You want to say something? <laughs> I think that uh, when if, – if you're listening to this and you're, and you're taking anything we're saying um, as if it's like metaphorical, please don't. <laughs> because when I, when I say magic – I mean that it is being practiced in a way uh, within Hollywood and our financial system that really surpasses belief until you look into it. And then when you see people on the inside of those things actually talking about what they do every day or what they did every day, people looking back on the financial crisis and saying, what were we doing uh, with mortgage-backed securities, truly? the words that they use for it begin to be religious and magical. So I'm not speaking metaphorically. I'm just using their own words. Which makes me think of Stanley Kubrick, and we'll just let the episode end right there. 